Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Give us kingdom hearts, Lord. Give us kingdom dreams and meditations. Take up residence in us and transform us from the inside out. Amen. Well, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount together, and in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus sets forth six antitheses, six times where he follows the formula, you have heard that it was said, but I say, and in each, key, and in each case, Jesus gets to the heart of the law, the inside of the cup. In the first four antitheses, Jesus addressed anger, lust, divorce, and swearing oaths. And we come today to the last two, which have to do with personal retaliation and love for our enemies. These are some of the most famous and least understood of all of Jesus' teachings. Not long ago, an American college professor polled his students about the teachings of Jesus. He said, if all else were lost, what is the one teaching of Jesus that you would choose to salvage? And as he gathered the results, he found that the most popular result was this, the call to love our enemies. Isn't that interesting? These college students, some of them Christians, but some of them not Christians, were attracted to this idea that Jesus taught people to love their enemies. And I suspect that those of us in this room, whether we identify uh, as Christians or not, most of us really admire the way that Jesus loved his enemies, right? We admire that and that he taught others to do the same. Now, this doesn't, to be clear, mean that we're actually any good at it, right? But we believe, you know, it's a nice ideal, you know, it's something worth striving for. Tim Keller, who has traveled around the globe for decades, observed that in every culture, there are parts of Christianity that people are prone to like and other parts of that culture that, that sort of rub it the wrong way. So there are parts of Jesus' message that we are more prone to kind of happily embrace, usually the parts that fit with our own cultural sensibilities and other parts that offend those sensibilities. But the thing is, it's not always the same issues for every culture. What causes offense for one people group uh, may sound totally reasonable to the other or vice versa, right? So for example, in the secular West, we like this idea that Jesus says that we should love our enemies, right? We say that that's a nice thing, right? But, but we don't really like it when Jesus talks about hell and final judgment, which if you read the gospels, he does more often than we're comfortable with. On the other hand, whenever Tim Keller would travel further east, he would meet a lot more people that were perfectly happy with the idea that God was going to judge the world, that at some point a just God would come and set the world right. They loved that idea. But this idea of loving your enemies, that was tough for them to swallow. I remember I countered this sense of cultural difference once on accident. I was working as a campus minister at FSU, and we had organized this multicultural potluck. It was a chance for students to share their food and their heritage and to hear the good news that Jesus had come to reconcile a people of every ethnicity and culture. And when the time came for the event, we probably had about 35 or 40 students, uh, mostly international students from South Korea or China, as well as many American students. 
And during the dinner, we showed a video from a Korean missionary to Japan. And in this video, he explained um, how difficult it was to overcome his own personal hatred of the Japanese due to the Asian Holocaust during World War II. But he testified that through Christ, he had forgiven them. And he was now devoting his entire life to serving them. Now, I'm not a super emotional person, but I thought the message was so beautiful that it literally had me in tears the first time I heard it. However, when we showed it to this group of international students, I found out that far from bringing them to tears, it actually annoyed most of them. I remember several, several of them telling me afterwards, the Japanese don't deserve that kind of forgiveness. Now, I don't share all this to cast judgment upon these internationals because those of us from the West have our, our, our own issues too. Amen? And I actually admired them for their honesty. I mean, who says something like that? The fact is that these students carried deep, rooted, cultural, generational hurt toward the Japanese. And apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, it was hard for them to imagine loving their enemies in the way that Jesus had inspired this Christian, this Korean missionary to do. It was a good reminder that the kind of love that Jesus talks about in our gospel reading today doesn't come naturally to human beings, irrespective of culture. Jesus says some things that are so outrageous, so contrary to our self-centered nature, that if we're being honest, they're an affront to people everywhere. Do we really want to say we like these teachings? When I first read them, I thought either I'm further from moral goodness than I realized, or Jesus has lost his mind. And given the audacity of Jesus' teaching, it's at this point in the Sermon on the Mount where if we have not done so already, we're tempted to throw up our hands in defeat, get off the bus and say, I can never live like that. Right? Furthermore, it causes us to question whether such a life is actually viable. In fact, whole theologies have been constructed to avoid obeying these teachings. So we're going to look at this topic of loving our enemies this morning, this topic that both attracts our admiration, but also offends our better judgment. And I want to address four questions. One, how should we interpret these words? Two, are we really supposed to do this stuff? Three, why does Jesus say that we must be perfect? And four, what is the cost of choosing to love our enemies? Now, the first question I want to address is, how should we interpret these words, these radical teachings of Jesus? Would you please grab a pew Bible and turn with me to page 810, Matthew 5, beginning on verse 38. And as you're turning there, it's important to remind you what we learned a few weeks back, that Jesus is not contradicting the law of Moses in his antitheses found in verses 38 and 43. Remember, Jesus has already clarified in verse 17 that he had not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. Jesus never contradicted the Old Testament. He taught that it came from the mouth of God, Matthew 4, 4. No, what Jesus was contradicting in his antitheses was the interpretive tradition of the scribes and Pharisees who had twisted the word of God to suit their own purposes. I'm glad we don't do anything like that. So for example, Jesus says in verse 38, 
You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, there are many people who take that short phrase as sort of a summary statement of Old Testament ethics as justification for personal revenge and as basically underlying the cardinal difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Have you ever heard teaching or ever heard something to that effect? This is an uninformed and ignorant view of the Old Testament. Moses never promoted the idea of taking personal revenge. In fact, Leviticus 19 specifically commands us, you shall not take revenge or even hate your brother in your heart. Instead, this eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth quotation from Deuteronomy 19.21 was given in context to guide Jewish judges or magistrates. If someone committed a crime in ancient Israel, they deserve to be punished as a matter of justice. But their punishment should be proportionate to their crime, right? A tooth for a tooth, not a tooth for an arm or a tooth for a life. Now, the problem was the elders in Jesus' days had wrenched this instruction from the law courts where it belonged and applied it to personal retaliation where it does not belong. They were using this misapplication of scripture to justify their own lust for personal revenge. And what about hating our enemies in verse 43? Well, this was an even more egregious misuse of scripture because you can search the whole Old Testament. You'll never even find that quotation. What the Bible does command you to do is to love your neighbor. And the pharisaical limitations applied to the word neighbor were interpreted in such an extreme sense as to allow, by extension, the actual hatred of one's enemies. And oh, the Jews of Jesus' day, they were being encouraged, drummed up to hate their Roman oppressors with an intense passion, with a religiously sanctified hatred. Do we not hear these same voices making appeals to us in our own day, encouraging a kind of morally sanctioned hatred and violent retaliation? We may hear it. At times, we may even hear it from religious voices, just as they did in Jesus' day. But Hatred is never, never the way of Jesus Christ. Perhaps the most challenging aspect of this to our modern sensibilities is that in context, Jesus spoke these words not to the oppressors, but to the oppressed. Not to those who had the power to dish out systematic injustice, but to those lacking power who were actually being systematically persecuted. Do you understand? Jesus is telling them to love their enemies. And I ask you the question that God asked Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry that Jesus told these Jewish people to love their oppressors who don't know their right hand from their left hand, who need God just as much as you do? Jesus is building upon Moses here, who says in Exodus 23, 4 and 5, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Do you understand that? 
participating with, cooperating with your enemy, somebody who has been slandering your name to others. Isn't that beautiful? Doesn't that sound like the teaching of Jesus? But friends, if these teachings are so beautiful, then why do we respond like modern Pharisees by building up a hundred different excuses for setting them aside? Well, the most obvious reason is because they challenge our self-interest. And we don't have faith in Jesus' vision of true blessedness, of true human flourishing in God. Jesus wants to teach us that there's a kind of bondage in this world that has the appearance of freedom and a true freedom that has the appearance of bondage. Perhaps a more honest reason we reject them is that we fear applying these teachings, especially those in verses 39 through 42, will literally result in social anarchy. When a thief steals from a cash register, should we tell him, hey, don't forget the money in the safe? Or to give a more serious example, when a gunman opened fire at FSU a few years back, would Jesus have required the campus police to turn the other cheek? These kinds of questions show that we are missing the point. Jesus is clearly giving examples of personal injuries, not social or institutional evils. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus' words have absolutely no wider social or political implication. Of course they do. And I'll touch on that briefly later. It's also worth pointing out that Jesus never suggests that we turn someone else's cheek or make someone else vulnerable. But the point is that these teachings concern our response to our own enemies and our own injuries. And this brings us to our second question. Are we really supposed to do this stuff? And the simple answer is yes. Now, this answer might seem obvious, but it's a question that many sincere Christians and seekers have asked. Perhaps you've asked it yourself. You may be aware that there are certain modern voices who claim that Christians are not supposed to obey these teachings. And they're supposed to be sort of reserved for a future age when Jesus returns. In fact, the popular Schofield Reference Bible dismisses the relevance of the entire Sermon on the Mount for present day Christians, including the Lord's Prayer. But Jesus never allows for such a view. Part of his great commission is that we are to teach baptized believers to obey everything that he has commanded. Now, this should go without saying that everything that he's commanded in Matthew 28, 20 includes all of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, right? As disciples, we should seek to teach and live out all that Jesus taught, and we should reject any theology that encourages us to do otherwise. Yes. At times, following Jesus will require us to literally turn the other cheek. At times, it will require us, in the words of Hebrews 10.34, to joyfully accept the confiscation of our property because we're convinced that we have better and more lasting possessions. Amen? If that was the experience of the earliest Christians, why should we expect that it will never be ours? However, we need to be careful not to apply Jesus' words too legalistically, as if they're wooden laws that we must obey in all circumstances. That was never the point. Jesus is painting a picture of what kingdom life and the kingdom heart really look like. The Sermon on the Mount is not 
a simplistic list of do's and don'ts. It describes a whole life orientation that will shape our thinking and our prayers and our actions. Dallas Willard warns, a Pharisee takes his aim at keeping the law rather than becoming the kind of person whose deeds naturally conform to the law. So rather than legalistic rules, Jesus is trying to give us authoritative kingdom principles like non-resistance and love for our enemies and then fleshing these out for us, what these principles will look like in practice through many illustrations like going the extra mile or praying for our enemies. But let me flesh out the distinction between principles and laws a bit further. Recently, uh, the Bodo family has been going through old videos. We have old family videos uh, of Avila and Nora when they were toddlers. And uh, as we're watching them, Chris and I are realizing what an ever-present danger Avila was to the baby Nora. (laughs) And I can tell you, it's one thing for me to say to Avila, don't hit your sister. And that's a rule. And that's a very good one. There's nothing wrong with rules, right? But they're different than principles. On the other hand, if I say to her, love your sister, I mean much more than just don't hit your sister or make sure you include her in your game or share your popcorn. But I don't mean less, right? If if she's truly acting out of love for Nora, she won't hit her sister and she will include her and she will share her popcorn. Does that make sense? In his book, The Divine Conspiracy, the philosopher Dallas Willard shows that a similar rationale should be applied to the teachings of Jesus, specifically when he says to love our enemies. He writes, all is changed when we realize that these are illustrations of what a certain kind of person, the kingdom person, will characteristically do in such situations. They are not laws of righteous behavior. Willard then asks, will there then be cases in which persons of kingdom righteousness will not do what is said here? Quite certainly. But they will be very rare so long as it's only an individual injury that's at stake and no issues of larger good are concerned. After all, this is characteristic behavior of the person with the kingdom heart, and it does express who that person is at the core of his or her being. So the point that, that Willard is trying to make about Jesus is that he wants to transform who we are, not simply alter what we do. He's after the inside of the cup, right? Not merely the outside. So let's, let's flesh this out a little bit more. I'm not going to look at all of Jesus's illustrations of kingdom living, but let's zoom in on verse 42. He says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow you, borrow from you. Does Jesus really mean that we should be willing and prepared to give to people who have no prior claim on us simply because they ask us? The shocking answer is yes. We are free. We are made free by the love of God to freely give our possessions and to place a greater value on the opportunity to bless other people than we do upon our possessions, right? That's a great principle, Now, it's not a law that we obey in every circumstance. Such a law would lead to absurd conclusions. 
Willard points this one out. He says, imagine that there's a brain surgeon that's headed to an emergency surgery to the hospital, and they see someone with a sign asking for food on the side of the road, and they say, oh, I got to get to this brain surgery, but Jesus says that I should give to the one who begs for me, so I better pull over and stop and talk to this guy. No, that's an absurd use of this teaching because it's not a wooden law, right? Okay, so that example is a little extreme, but let's bring it closer to home. What if you leave church today and someone approaches you and tells you they're hungry? And you say, okay, well, I'll buy you some food. But they have this strange insistence that you give them cash. What should you do? Well, I know um, a friend of mine uh, on InterVarsity staff back in the day who used to carry these 5 and $10 gift cards to McDonald's around with her in her pocket, in her, in, in her purse, and in her wallet, um, so that when someone would come up to her, she would be able to provide something for them to be able to give something. But she realized, like, there really are people with mental health disorders. There really are people with addictions. And I don't actually want to do them harm while I'm trying to actually help them, right? But I do want to be prepared to give them something. Now, the thing that I appreciated about her is that she loved her neighbor enough to be that intentional. She was willing to consider their true needs, and she was prepared to be generous to total strangers that she hadn't met yet. Hugh Palmer says, Jesus is not calling for gullibility, but love. But be sure it's love and not love of your possessions. Be sure it's love and not stinginess. Our third question from this passage is, why does Jesus say we must be perfect? This question arises from his final antithesis in verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Notice again that Jesus isn't primarily concerned with what we do, but with who we are, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Jesus wants us to imitate the Father, who through common grace, freely showers blessing on both the righteous and the unrighteous, on both the just and the unjust. In other words, Jesus is saying, don't let your love be so limited, like those who love only those who love them. Everyone does that. Your father does more than that. Here Jesus is talking to his disciples, to those who have already been adopted by God and are part of the father's house. They've been brought into the father's house. And with a father like that, of course, a healthy son wants to be like his dad. Wants to be a chip off the old block. Wants to love people like his father loves people. This isn't a call to those on the outside of the faith to earn their salvation through perfectionism. It's a call to those already on the inside to bear the family resemblance. To show themselves to be sons and daughters of God. When I was growing up, I naturally admired and imitated my dad. He was strong, so I wanted to be strong. He used the word dude a lot. So I use the word dude a lot. I remember I, I used to watch him fishing and try to imitate him. Actually, in fact, I still watch him when he's fishing because he's still a better fisherman than me. And I love my dad. But he's an imperfect man. How much more so, beloved? 
how much more so should we imitate the father of lights in whom there is no shadow? And it's only in this context of filial imitation of healthy sonship and daughtership that we can truly understand verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. This is not intended as a crushing mother of all commands that finally ruins our chances to get into heaven. This command is the necessary outcome of love. Don't you see beloved? Don't you see to share in the beauty of the father's perfect love is the highest aim of our existence. God's holiness is true wholeness, true flourishing, and he wants us to abide in him. In fact, translating the Greek word teleos, meaning complete or full grown as perfect, can actually be unhelpful at times because we immediately think of the error of perfectionism, of scrupulosity. And for this reason, one scholar translates this verse, they're short, therefore you shall be whole as your father is whole. Now to be clear, no one finishes this journey toward wholeness on this side of heaven. And no one will get into heaven without God's grace and forgiveness. Jesus calls us to the father's perfect love, not because he's a legalist, but because this is the journey. And he will suffer nothing less than our full restoration to wholeness. He wants no half measures for us. He wants wholeness for you. And that brings us to our last question. What does it cost? What does it cost to love our enemies as the father loved his enemies? There's no getting around it. The cost is great indeed. To love our enemies will require what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called a visible participation in the cross. It's what Jesus called taking up our cross daily and following him. This is not one of those all roads lead to the same destination kind of things. Jesus describes the way as narrow and hard. But friends, he'll show us the way. Indeed, he is the way. Think of the Korean missionary to Japan. Loving his enemies, it cost him his grudge. It cost him his pride. It cost him the effort of learning Japanese for years, the native tongue of a people group that he was brought up to despise. It cost him the best years of his life spent washing their feet. But I bet he wouldn't take it back for a second. Beloved, I say to you again, there's a kind of bondage in this world that looks like freedom and a kind of freedom that looks like bondage to this world. Or think of the nonviolent resistance of Martin Luther King Jr. He taught that when someone strikes you on the right cheek, your animal nature screams fight or flight. But by choosing to do neither, you're walking in true love and freedom. The costly kind of love that flows from the gospel. Dallas Willard writes, if we respond as Jesus indicates, the force of their own actions pulls them off their stance and forces them to question what kind of people they are. Of course, they're acting from anger and worst. But now with our other cheek facing them, slapped, already soon to be slapped, 
the justification of their anger and evil that they were counting on has been removed. As anger feeds on anger, so patient goodness will often deflate it. So I ask you this morning, do you love your enemies? This simply cannot be done by willpower alone. It requires a radical conversion from the inside out to be born again from above, to be transformed by the Holy Spirit so that we can bear the family resemblance. The power to love our enemies comes straight from God's own heart to our own. Do you want to know what love for your enemies looks like when it's fully fleshed out? Behold the man upon the cross. The one who was pierced for our transgressions. The one who cried out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. While we were enemies, it says in Romans 5.10, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. In other words, if God didn't show love for his enemies, then we are all lost. We are all lost. Who were his enemies? Who were Jesus' enemies? We were. Who cursed him and abused him? We did. Who spat in his innocent face, pulled out his beard, mocked him, and nailed him to a tree? Taylor Bodo. Fumio Jatayo, Michelle Phillips, Bev Lewis. But guys, it wasn't the strength of our own arms that held Jesus to the cross. And it wasn't the strength of the nails. It was the strength of Almighty God's self-giving love for his enemies. Romans 5, 6, 6 through 8 says, For while we were still weak... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What is the cost of loving our enemies? This question brings us to the very heart of the gospel. For God so loved the world... We could say, for God so loved his enemies that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's what love for enemies cost heaven. It cost the substitutionary death of the son of God. Believe in it, beloved. Abide in it. And then, as true disciples, go and do likewise. Amen.